At MSA, your health and safety drive is to develop advanced safety equipment with performance and protection in perfect balance. Like Globe Athletics, the latest innovation in turnout gear. Developed as an athletic gear for firefighters, Athletics uses unique stretch fabrics that provide body contoured fit for unprecedented range of motion and flexibility. It's lighter weight, less bulky, and provides the protection you need from your turnout gear. Get the full story at msafire.com globe. Welcome to Today on Firehouse. My name is Peter Matthews. I'm the editor of Firehouse Magazine. And today we've got a very special guest. Uh, it's uh, Thomas Dunn, a retired deputy chief uh, from FDNY. Uh, Tom just uh, finished a book called Notes from the Fireground, a memoir of a New York firefighter. Um, I was very fortunate enough to have a chance to read the advanced copy of it and looking forward to uh, picking up my new copy here that Tom just sent over uh, and reading it on a trip I've got coming up in the next couple of days. So uh, welcome, Tom. And um Thank you, thank, you, Pete. Thank, you. Um, thank you, Pete. Good morning, and uh, thanks so much for having me as a guest. Well, thank you. I, I greatly appreciate it, and uh, looking forward to talking about the book and, and FDNY today. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about your career um, and your 33 years in the job, kind of what got you into the job, um, and then you know where you worked over the years and, and whatnot? Oh, sure. Um, well, I retired uh, a few years ago. Uh, I'm about four years out of the job now. Um, I spent 33 years uh, with the FDNY. Um, I joined it for a number of reasons, uh, although I'd have to say one of the biggest influences absolutely would be the fact that my, my father uh, was a New York City firefighter for 30 years. Uh, it's not an occupation that normally I would have thought uh, about joining or being a part of, and yet having an early exposure to it through my father kind of impressed me in the way that these men conducted themselves and, and the type of work they did. It, it seemed like I grew up in uh, Brooklyn in, in New York City, and it seemed like so many of the people in my neighborhood just kind of, their work was just a drudgery, and they would go nine to five, Monday to Friday, to factories or office jobs. And yet my father always looked forward to going to work, and when I would see them at the firehouse or see them in action at uh, fires in Brooklyn and the neighborhood, uh, there was a sort of an era of, of feeling of excitement about them that I, I was always curious about. So I did other types of jobs prior to the FDNY, and like a lot of people, took the civil service test, and the job happened to come along at just the right time. Um, loved doing it at every level, at every rank, and like every department started off at the very bottom as, as a brand new uh, trainee, uh, what we call a probie, uh, sort of the lowest of the low of the fire department pecking order. And through the years, um, had an opportunity to go through all the ranks um, in the FDNY. The first promotion is to lieutenant and then to captain. Uh, uh, next step for me was battalion chief and eventually made it to the deputy chief rank. Uh, so 33 years went by quickly, but it was um, a lot of different experiences at different ranks at various parts of the city, and it, it became, um, you know, my, my life's work, uh, something that really uh, changed me as a person and, and I, I think added so much uh, uh, to my life experience. Great. And, and, you know, as far as your time, again, uh, you know, the last podcast I had was with um... – with John Salka, you know, and, and, and now, you know, to, to have you on, um, I don't want to make this an FDNY show. It just happened to be that these worked out uh, time-wise together um, to have two FDNY guests. But tell 
about, you know, your time on the job and what it was like being a firefighter uh, all the way, you know, through a chief um, in the city's uh, busiest time. Well, the, the job changed and evolved through the years, uh, as did my rank, as did, to some extent, who I was as a person. Uh, I found that I grew tremendously in this job uh, as an individual, as I gathered more experience and, and had so many different challenges to overcome. Uh, I mentioned the, the four ranks I went through. Each one was a learning experience. Uh, each one was somewhat nerve-wracking as I started out the job. And to be very honest, I, looking back on it, I'm not sure I was actually ready for any of the promotions when they came along. Um, I sort of learned as I was doing the job and found myself growing in uh, to the different ranks. And I was promoted at a time when um, the FDNY had not yet gotten extremely proactive in terms of training people for the next step up. Uh, right now, they, they do a really good job of um, teaching you, mentoring you, and sending you to training before you become a, a lieutenant, uh, before you become a battalion chief or a deputy chief. Uh, when, when I went through the various uh, ranks, I was basically, in my case, a firefighter in mid-Manhattan on a Friday day tour, and two days later on a Sunday night tour, I had a new insignia on my collar that made me a lieutenant. I was I was an engine lieutenant in Brooklyn, and I knew nothing about uh, paperwork. I knew nothing about administration. The whole concept of being a so-called leader was new and alien to me. And um, I, years later, I still clearly remember uh, the day before that first night tour in Brooklyn and how nervous I was. And uh, when I would go to the firehouse that night, I'm sure the firefighters knew there was this brand new green Johnny lieutenant coming in. But the good thing about the department was 99.9% .9 of the people uh, that worked with me and for me were great guys who carried me through the rank at the early stages. Uh, they were very experienced firefighters. Um, if I didn't know something about the neighborhood or about a particular building, uh, they were just great. They were great support personnel. And I really found this uh, at every rank I went through. Um, the big jump for any, anyone in our department, the two biggest jumps were from firefighter to company officer. And then the next big jump was from company officer to chief, because at that point you're your whole perspective of the job changes and, and your your level of responsibility increases dramatically. And then the another big jump is when you go from battalion chief, who is generally the initial incident commander at a fire in New York and uh, sets up the initial attack, generally has about four engines and three trucks to work with. Next big jump is when you're the deputy, because at that point, you are basically the man. I mean, you you are running an operation that may have anywhere from 60 people on the initial alarm to maybe 120 or more people if additional alarms are transmitted for for the incident. And um, at least at the BC, at the battalion chief rank, you knew that your deputy was coming in within minutes of your arrival. So if it was a real difficult job or there were a lot of unknowns or problems with this job, you knew you had a guy coming in who was going to exchange information with you and assume command of the fire. 
uh, once I got to the deputy rank, which was um, my last rank, and I did about 14 and a half years in that position, you basically had it. And you were in a position where you had to make some pretty crucial uh, five-round decisions uh, that were going to affect the well-being of a lot of your people. And if the job was enough involved, if it went to a third or fourth along, you knew someone from headquarters, a staff chief at some point was going to show up and, and he was going to assume command of the fire. But that that took some time. And especially if it was a weekday, uh, when I worked in the Bronx, for example, or northern Manhattan, uh, Metro Tech, which is downtown Brooklyn, was generally where the staff chief was coming from. He wasn't going to be there for a while uh, because it's fairly far and there's always traffic in New York. So you knew that you you bore an enormous amount of responsibility at that point. And that took some getting used to. Um, I, I would say it was several months before I really got comfortable with that rank. I was somewhat of a nervous wreck initially with that rank, uh, but it, it turned out to be in many ways, my, my favorite position in the fire department, because as I gathered experience and got better and better at the rank, I, I found it very stimulating. Uh, I felt I found that um, just communicating with people and, and, and managing and being proactive uh, uh, was something I got increasingly comfortable with. And a thing that helped me a lot at that position, and probably throughout my career, was that I was a pretty good actor. Uh, I, I went to a lot of jobs where after the job, people would come up to me and say, hey, you know, you seem completely calm. Like no matter what was happening, you sounded like it was under control. And I would be very honest with them. Uh, if you had put a blood pressure thing on my, my arm at certain points in that job, it would have gone through the roof. I, I kind of felt that uh, no matter how nervous I feel, I'm not going to show that. I'm going to bend over backwards to communicate calmly and set the tone for a calm, safe operation. So that that's sort of the, you know, where my mind was at as I went uh, through the different ranks. And uh, a city as big and diverse as New York, another thing you got to experience on the job was a tremendous amount of diversity. Uh, I spent fair amount of time in Midtown, and that was its own world with the high-res world, you know, high-profile incidents down there. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also had an opportunity to work many years in the Bronx and, and bounced throughout the city. Uh, gave me an opportunity to see some of the poorer neighborhoods, some of the really active areas of the city where, um, unfortunately, people had difficult lives. Uh, some of the areas were, you know, crime-ridden, uh, drug-ridden. Um, city has turned around tremendously since, since I uh, first started on the job. In many ways, it's a, it's a lot better city. But uh, the, the, the career I had with FDNY um, gave me so many opportunities to not only to develop as a firefighter, but as a person, uh, but also as, as someone who was an observer of the city and, and see how the city that I, I was born in and grew up in uh, kind of evolved through the years. Okay. You know, and, and so one of the one of the points in one of your chapters, it's the lieutenants, uh, the, the Halo chapter. You know, you mentioned, I think you kind of covered it here, uh, but it says, like many green, uh, inexperienced lieutenants, I was often carried uh, by my men through periods of unfamiliarity with the job. They were excellent at what they did, and they shared their, int or their knowledge about the intricacies of the buildings and their response areas. 
Right. And that's, you know, that's one component, you know, a little bit further, you go down, you talk about the paperwork and everything else. And, you know, at this point, uh, right now, one of my buddies is going through the FDNY flip school, which is, uh, is it the first line supervisor program? Um, he's not on the job at FDNY. He's in another department in New York state. Um, but fortunately FDNY opens up that school, uh, for lieutenants, new lieutenants to go through and get the education, um, that they need to, to kind of transition from firefighter to lieutenant, right? It's, it's not just paperwork. It's not just leading the fire ground. It's not just leading a crew. Um, there's so much more to it. And, and talking with him, you know, he's, he's told me it's, it's a lot tougher than he expected. He's been a lieutenant for about a year, but just the way flips, uh, the availability of flip school um, played out, you know, he's been in his role for a year, but now he's going to get that education. Um, and, you know, throughout your book, you talk about that. You know, you talk about being an officer and what it's like. And, you know, you shared some good stories right now about your blood pressure rising through the roof. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, at the same time, you still be, you're able to keep your cool and, you know, you're able to uh, have folks, you know, believe that uh, you know exactly what's going on and you've got everything under control. Um, do you have any advice for whether it's a new officer as a lieutenant or a new chief officer um, on how to keep your cool and, and, you know, maybe at what point, um, what point that they may need to ask for some help or, you know, bring somebody else in to kind of help command an incident or a scenario or a situation? Well, I would say that the first thing to realize and to accept is that nobody's Superman, that um, if you get promoted to a rank in any department, uh, whether it's company officer or chief, you can fully expect to feel uh, strong levels of discomfort when you first step into that role. And, and if you don't feel that, you're probably not um, performing in that role the way ideally you should. I think part of accepting a, a position of more responsibility is accepting the fact that is it is going to be a more stressful position. Um, going again, going through what I kind of call the, the bureaucracy or the cone of, of, of firefighting in general, uh, you start at the bottom as a firefighter. Eventually, if you're interested, you become a company officer. Perhaps, you know, heaven forbid, you eventually become a chief. I remember when I was a firefighter, um, I was younger. I was so excited to have the job. Uh, it was physical. It was hands-on. My adrenaline was popping. Uh, I couldn't wait to go to my next fire. If I was uh, off and a good job came in when my unit was working, I'd be very frustrated. Uh, but who was I responsible for back then? Just myself. When you take that first step to leadership, whether it's company officer or chief or whatever department you're in, that all changes. You, you have to realize that it's no longer you, that every decision you make on the fire ground is going to affect the four or five people that you're supervising in your company, or maybe the dozen or two dozen people that you're supervising as a chief. And if things go badly on the fire ground, there's an excellent chance that they're going to go badly early on, which means that when you come in as the initial senior firefighter or company officer or whoever you are setting up the initial attack or strategy of this fire, uh, your initial decisions that you make, let's say in the first five minutes of the job, are going to set the tone for the whole job. So um, you, you are early on thrust into a position uh, that is a stressful one, that is a key position, 
and it's only natural you're going to feel this, regardless of what department you're in. Um, I would say accept that as a reality. Um, accept the fact that you didn't get to that position by accident or by mistake. The very fact that you are a new company officer, that your department chose to make you a new company officer or a new chief or whatever rank they put you in, you have a certain body of knowledge in your mind from the things you've studied. You have a certain amount of experience from the jobs, from the fires, from the incidents that you responded to in the past. And your department thought enough of you as a person to put you in that position. It's not like they picked you out of a hat or something. Uh, despite mm -hmm. what you might feel some discomfort, uh, you do have a body of knowledge. I think you can tap into that uh, as a source of um, strength and security when you're in that new rank. Uh, I know that as I went through the ranks, even though I was uncomfortable, I would kind of force myself to realize, hey, I chose this, I prepared for this, even though I may not have had yet the formal classroom training to put me in this position, I have had a good amount of fire background, all right? I have read an awful lot. I know my personnel. I know about building construction. I've stayed on top of the game. So I would say knowledge knowledge is your friend. Uh, the more knowledge you have, the better officer you're going to be and the comma officer you're going to be. So I, I would say those two things, just realizing that it's okay to feel uncomfortable and at the same time, don't degrade yourself. You got there for a reason. You're a person who is capable of doing the job. And yet you will learn, you will go through a learning process and you're going to screw up and you're going to make mistakes and, and um, you're going to learn from those mistakes. And, I, and in, in the book, in various parts, I was very honest and highlighted some of the classic mistakes I made. Uh, you, you, you're constantly moving forward. You may fail at something or, or not do a good job, but you you will learn a lot more from a fire or an incident that you didn't do too well than you will at a fire that went very well. Uh, I, I'm, I'm convinced that the mistakes I made, that the mistakes anyone out there happens to make at a particular fire will stick in your head and will be part of your retained knowledge and I guarantee you will make you a better fire uh, officer with the next fire you go to. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. So, so the book, let's, let's dive into that. And then, you know, we'll, we'll kind of pick up some of this discussion here as we talk sure. about the book, but so the book is called notes from the fire ground, uh, memoir of a New York firefighter. Um, what was the motivation for getting this book uh, to the publisher? Well, I think there are a couple of things, uh, two two basic things. Um, like anyone who was in the fire service, uh, especially in a big bureaucracy like the FDNY, uh, I, I did a lot of technical writing and technical reading for many, many years. And uh, that was part of the job, uh, learning the job, uh, communicating to people inside the job. When I would do safety committee meetings, there, there were always construction details or, or tactics or strategies that I wanted to reinforce and send out to the units in the field, uh, various types of reports I would send to them. Um, and, and it was important and it was good and it was hands-on nuts and bolts. But after many years of that, I was always tempted to at least take a shot at a different type of writing. I wanted to write um, sort of from the heart, so to speak. 
I wanted to try a different type of writing. And, and when I retired from the department, um, I still had the opportunity to keep very busy with, with other things and lecturing and things of that nature. But now I had time I didn't have to sit down and to uh, start to experiment a little bit about a different type of writing. So um, a couple of years ago, I actually started um, writing individual essays or thinking of ideas for things I wanted to say uh, in a book. And at first, conceptually, I wasn't even sure what I was looking for. I didn't know if I wanted to do a, try an online thing or, or a series of essays or articles. It was kind of ambiguous. After a while, I realized well, the best thing for me to do is to try to piece together all these thoughts and insights and memories and concepts into a book, if at all possible. And I started getting more and more interested in not so much describing strategy and tactics, but talking about um, the hidden life of being a firefighter, the hidden life of what's it like to be in the FDNY in particular, and even uh, the urban environment. What, New York City is the biggest city, uh, one of the biggest cities in the world. To some people, it's the center of the universe. I, I wanted to describe what it felt like to be a firefighter first deal with a job. I wanted to talk about what it feel like um, to be a chief at your first big fire or, or chief at a difficult job. Uh, what did it feel like to be in mid-Manhattan, you know, that bustling high-rise world? Uh, what was it like in the South Bronx, you know, in some of the run-down neighborhoods? What were some of the sites you saw that were uh, unforgettable? You know, things, um, some of the things I saw in run-down tenements. Uh, the hidden life in New York, the, the feelings of being a firefighter, uh, life in the kitchen, you know, uh, New York City uh, is like any other fire department. The, the the kitchen, firehouse kitchen, is sort of the focal point of, of the firehouse. What was it like in there? Most people uh, outside the fire service have no concept of that. It, it's it's a um, uh, sort of, a, I can describe it as a town hall meeting after a fire. It, it gets to be raucous. It is extremely funny. Uh, I, I wanted to let people know uh, about that aspect of, of the, the job. So, the the, the motivation for the book um, kind of uh, morphed over time. Uh, since I had some time to write, I was looking to write a different type of uh, thing, and it kind of transitioned from a quasi-technical book to a book that was really a sort of a flow of consciousness. Uh, uh, relation of memories of experiences of the city of the fire department uh, you can't write about the FDNY and not uh, at least have some mention of 9-11 because it was such an, an overwhelming experience and, and, and to this day has such overwhelming effects on so many people um, and some of the individual things uh, Happy Lance Fire uh, some of the almost historical um, events that I was was able to witness. And then there were the very subtle things. You know, at one point in the book, I, I talk about, um, there's a chapter I call a Jane Doe, and it's basically about um, a poor woman who lives in a rundown tenement in a rundown area who dies at a fire. And as I'm groping around her apartment, trying to get some identity of who she in fact was, uh, maybe by a piece of mail or something, and couldn't find out who she was, started asking neighbors, and none of the neighbors had ever spoken to her, had no idea even what her name was. And and thinking, driving home from work that day, of here's this relatively young woman who now is deceased that was here, and now she's gone, and it was almost like uh, no ripple effect. No one no one knew her. 
no one seemed to care, and as it always does, the universe just goes on. So I think there were a lot of thoughts, uh, memories, emotions, insights that were kind of pent up in me, and certainly not exclusive to me. Anyone who worked in this job for any length of time in any location of the country, I'm sure has had similar experiences, and I, I just sort of wanted to share mine. Uh, and over the period of the two to three years or, or so that it took to write, uh, this is sort of what it evolved into. You know, and, and you talked about the kitchen table, and, and that's a, a huge topic nowadays, right? The kitchen table is where everything happens. Um, you, you know, for my time, when I was fortunate enough to spend time at, at busy firehouses as a teenager writing out, um, you know, the kitchen itself served as everything, right? You had the bulletin board and, and the funny notes that were on the bulletin board, the pictures that were hanging up. And, um, you know, firehouses would be a firehouse if you just had the kitchen, right? If you remove the apparatus bay and everything else, the kitchen is where everything happens. That is the central hub of a station. Every every laugh is shared there. Every, you know, uh, moment under stress and duress is, is kind of, you know, brought out uh, in that environment. Um, but the kitchen is the kitchen is really just an amazing room in a station um, for the best days and the worst days. But I, you know, I remember just just the notes that would be left on the uh, the bulletin board or the you know the chalkboard. I'm sorry, or the pictures. Pictures would be lined in the walls, or you know, some some series of uh, headlines from the Daily News and New York Post would be pulled out and you know make some sort of um, description of a member in the station and stuff like that. Um, and that's good. It's it's good that the firefighters have a place to go. Um, you know, for instance, the Jane Doe situation, right? That's that's tough um, on members. And I mean, if you look at today, you know, same thing today. People are are pent up in their house, whether it's uh, on their phone or on a smart TV or whatever it is. You you know, you see news stories now. Uh, we see them as they come across the wire for posting on the site. Uh, a neighbor will die, and nobody knew the neighbor. You know, the neighbor's yep. been there for ten years or, or moved in five months ago. And people are so disconnected, uh, don't know anybody uh, outside of their, their neighbor or, I'm sorry, their house, or uh, maybe if their kid goes to school with somebody, they know Mr. or Mrs. such and such. But there is such a disconnect um, to, to other folks these days. Um, so it, that, that's an interesting perspective. I mean, you know, back, back in the Bronx when you, when you had that situation, um, the world was different then. It's, it's different now. But, you know. That situation yeah, it, still is, is the, the kitchen. There's no doubt the kitchen is, is to me the focal point of of the firehouse. And you make a good point. How uh, ironically, in the cell phone era, uh, where we can communicate so much more efficiently, we hardly communicate at all sometimes. Because you know, I'm sure everyone's experienced to sit in a restaurant or on a plane, and no one's talking, and everyone's looking at this little screen. Um, a yeah. Kitchen is, is is the heartbeat of the firehouse. So much so that I. I dedicated a whole uh, chapter to the kitchen in the book. It is the focal point uh, of the firehouse. It's a it's a drawing together uh, right after mm -hmm. a fire, two three o'clock in the morning, uh, when you're coming down from this incident and you want to sit around and talk about it. Uh, uh, if, if you don't have a fire, it's the meal and the whole uh, physical and social process of uh, preparing the carrots and cooking the meal and getting. Uh, the, the count of people who are eating and how much it's going to cost, it draws people together. At the same time, uh, it, it can be a tough environment uh, if, if you're not used to it. 
I, I like to think that personalities are forged and defined in the firehouse kitchen. Um, it can be one of the funniest places on the planet. Uh, firefighters are, to me, some of the sharpest and most creative people in the world because they will say what's on their mind. Uh, what do you want to hear it or not? I, I've worked with some guys who were absolutely hysterical. Um, and and I, I think that um, I suspect that any kitchen, any firehouse kitchen, anywhere in the United States or Canada or, or England or France, uh, essentially is the same experience. I, I think the accents would change perhaps and maybe, uh, you know, one country would be interested in soccer, another country might like ice hockey, but I think you kind of see the same spirit, the, the same personalities. Um, one thing I liked about the kitchen very much, because I, I worked in a firehouse uh, for the last 14 years or so that had uh, myself, the deputy chief, an engine and a truck. Uh, it was about as democratic as you could get. Uh, any rank was open for ridicule or criticism. Uh, you could be the chief, you could be the newest probie there. Um, anyone was up uh, up for grabs, you know. So it wasn't like all of a sudden, well, you're the senior man, uh, you're the chief, you have to be treated a certain way. No, it was equal. You know, you, you gave it, it was give and take for, for everybody. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I, I found uh, sometimes just sitting at the table, listening to these guys, you know, talking to them, uh, it, it, it was it was a great experience. It, it definitely was uh, a key part of being a, a New York City firefighter, and I suspect a key part of being a firefighter uh, wherever you're working. And, and I think, you know, from being fortunate enough with this job to visit a lot of stations, you know, whether I'm visiting a, a writer or a friend or, you know, just stopping by to say hello, um, when they give you the, the nickel tour, you can tell a lot about the station by the kitchen. You know, if it's a sterile kitchen, uh, there's a good chance that uh, you're not going to find anybody in the kitchen when you stop by for a visit, you know. Um, yeah. It is interesting that the more stuff that's in the kitchen, um, I think the tighter the station um, seems to be. Um, every place is different, right? I mean, some stations I, I think only that, I think that's true, yeah. Too, so. I think that's yeah. true. I think, uh, and you've experienced this because you've, you've visited a number of uh, firehouses in New York City. I, as a covering officer in New York City, you're not initially assigned to one station. You're, you're called a covering officer, which means you're subject to go anywhere in the city. And it gives you, it wears out your car over the years as you're doing it, but it gives you an opportunity to go to many different firehouses. And I used to find, uh, when I was a covering officer, almost the moment I walked in the door, I would get a sense of that firehouse and what it was like and what its people were like. And you're right, the, the, once you got into the kitchen, if it was empty and nothing going on, it, it kind of said something about the place. It, it, it seemed to me generally that uh, a place that had a good spirit, uh, generally a place that had a good level of fire activity, there was always someone in the kitchen. There was always some activity going on in the kitchen. And the busier places may not have been as well kept because they were busy and they didn't have as much time maybe to polish things up and that sort of thing. Uh, but the kitchen would almost reflect the firehouse and, and very quickly, whether it was an outsider or a fire officer stepping through, you could size up that 
that building and those people and know a lot about them. And it worked the other way too. You know, if you walked yeah. into a firehouse as a strange officer, um, you know, you're one of three dozen strange officers they've seen in the last four or five weeks covering guys stepping through and they would do a quick size up of you also. And that meant that the way you carried yourself uh, was very important, uh, both as a person and certainly on the fire ground. Uh, because if you came across as uh, nervous or insecure, you know, I, I think it kind of uh, changed their perspective of you and certainly changed how much confidence they would have in you as a leader on the fire ground. And certainly over time, it, it as my confidence and experience grew, I got better and better at this. Uh, but initially, it was a struggle. I, I got promoted uh, relatively early. Uh, I was put in position sometimes. I, I mentioned one, one of the chapters um, sent out to a relatively quiet area for a tour, a night tour in Queens. And uh, two of my off, two of my firefighters, probably with, they were these old white-haired guys who probably each had 40 or more years on the job. And I stepped into the door as a green new lieutenant and thought, oh, geez, I'm, I'm going to super, I'm the leader of these guys. It's like working with your grandfather, you know. Uh, yeah. But um, they they were very good and respectful to me. And, and I tried to come across as, all right, I may be younger than you and I may not have your experience. I'm sure you went through the so-called war years in the FDNY. But like I said earlier in my recommendations to a new officer, I'm not here by circumstance. I'm here because I I worked for it. I'm here because I have a certain level of experience. Um, but yeah, the, going back to the kitchen, um, my favorite place to be in the firehouse, I think, was in the kitchen, whether I was eating a meal or, or just sitting back and, and conversing and, and enjoying the atmosphere. Uh, uh, kitchen kitchen is the the heartbeat, the focal point, the, the nerve center, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's the one thing uh, is I noticed, um, you know, even early on when I started with Firehouse, I, I've been here for 21 years now, and I was very fortunate. You know, I spent a lot of time in upstate New York firehouses and FDNY firehouses, in addition to where I was a volunteer. And, you know, my father's a volunteer, and, and, and it, a volunteer station is obviously a little different, right, uh, because it, it's transient. Folks aren't there all the time. But when you found a fire station that you walked in and, and the kitchen's empty at nine o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the afternoon. And there's 10 people working there. You, you could just tell it was a different vibe. Uh, yep. Maybe the TV room yep. was full, but, but you know, the, the walls were bare and it was just uh, two notes on a, on a blackboard. Um, it's, it's, it's not that firehouse where, where the, um, the brotherhood and sisterhood was as strong. You could just unfortunately see that. So, yeah, okay. yeah. The, the brotherhood would reflect itself in many different ways. Um, it was always present on the fire ground. You know, uh, mm -hmm. in many firehouses, it was more obvious than others. But you're right. Sometimes you'd go to an outlying place that maybe was not exceptionally busy, and you'd step in, especially if it was a single house, if it was just one unit, not two units. Um, you'd be walking around thinking, where is everybody, and, and what's going on here? Um, but, but, yeah, yeah I, think, I think that word brotherhood, you know, it's used so much, it, it almost wears itself out. Um, you hear about it, you read about it so much, uh, but the essence of it is always present on the fire ground. And very often in, in uh, most of the firehouses, you 
you get that sense uh, very much in the kitchen, uh, as, even as the humor is bantering about and we're insulting each other and yelling and screaming. Um, well, we're, we're doing it not as opponents, but as uh, as friends, as people who are connected. Um, something I, I think that motivated me somewhat in the book, too, was that uh, there's uh, a huge civilian um, world out there that dwarfs the fire service. And um, I, I, I originally intended the book, I thought firefighters would be interested in it because it's, you know, about the FDNY and, and all that stuff. But um, I wanted to hopefully reach out to the civilian community who have not been firefighters, who don't know what it's like to be in a firehouse kitchen, to be in that culture, who don't know what it's like to step off of an apparatus as the first due truck or the first due engine and, and, and have so much going on and sling that SCBA over your shoulder and, and, and work really hard and, and put the mask on and, and crawl through the smoke doing a job, but never really 100% sure of what to expect. You know, when you pop that door, what's it going to be like? So I, I think I wanted to, um, if I could, communicate the firehouse culture uh, to people out there who have not experienced it, because um, many of my friends are not firefighters, and I found that there were things I almost could not talk to them about because they couldn't relate to it as opposed to if I go down now to the city to visit a firehouse if someone I uh, worked with in the past is there there's so much we can we can talk about and relate to uh, on a personal level on, on the kitchen level uh, even on a fireground level because um, one thing I always found amazing um, firefighters will remember uh, intricate details of a job they, if they have a good job, a notable fire uh, that was significant in some way, they will remember who the officer was. They will remember who the nozzle man was. They know who the, the backup was. They will remember intimate details of a fire, you know, years and years after the incident. Uh, and I think that, too, is, you know, going back to the brotherhood thing, that, that's something that we share. Remember that fire we got beat up in? Do you remember that fire where we made a big mistake? Do you remember that fire where someone got hurt or we had all those uh, civilian fatalities? This is, this is something that, you know, the downside of the fire uh, of the world we live in that, that we share intimately with each other as a, as a brotherhood of firefighters. And again, it doesn't make a difference if it's FDNY or Pittsburgh or a volunteer outfit out in Iowa. Um, I think all firefighters can, can relate to that stuff. Agree, agreed, yeah. Um and that's that's part of the learning process, right? I mean that's 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 why it's there because that it's it seared into their mind that something happened that, that was worth repeating or not worth repeating. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so through through your career, um who were some of the influencers on, on Tom Dunn's FDNY career? Well, I'd I'd really have to start with my dad first. Uh my father, Francis mm-hmm. Dunn. Um I would not have been a firefighter uh, if he had not been a firefighter. Uh, I wouldn't have been a chief or a company officer or a lecturer or a writer. Uh, none of this stuff would have happened. This whole, uh, the, all these decades of experiences that I had, uh, all the good things that happened that are still happening now, um, sort of a chain of events. I, I think we're all influenced by people uh, in our lives who early on 
set the tone or give us opportunities. Um, I grew up, as I said, in Brooklyn. Uh, like many other people, I went through the traditional go to school, uh, go to college, take classes, go out and get a job. Um, I don't I, I don't think I ever would have even thought of applying uh, for the fire department if it wasn't for him. He had done it for 30 years. He, he loved his job. He encouraged me to take the test. Now, the, the civil service test uh, back then, certainly to a great extent today in New York City, was extremely competitive. About 30,000 people would take the test. The test would be given about every four years. Uh, you had to score very high on the physical and the written and all that stuff. And generally, uh, it would be years before you would be hired. It might be a few years since you took the test. And that was um, uh, uh, my, my case. That was my experience with it. Uh, the number of hirees is always dependent on the city budget, and that would change from time to time. And sometimes the budget would have severe cutbacks. So I took the test, got on the list, went on with my life, did different types of work, and it just happened to my name came up on the list at a very appropriate time, and that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't uh, for my father. So I would say, uh, without a doubt, he is uh, number one uh, in terms of why I became a firefighter. And even initially, when I started doing the work, he never told me too much about the job, but he would he would say things to me uh, that would reassure me as I was doing the job. For example, when I was brand new and I was a probie and hadn't yet even been to a good structural fire, I remember him saying to me, uh, don't get upset or uh, really nervous if you're in the smoke and you don't know where you are. Just yell out for your company. There's a good chance they're going to be just a few feet from you, but you're not going to see them. And I remember having that exact experience at one of my early jobs. I was in an engine. And uh, I got turned around a little bit and was in the smoke and was green and brand new. And uh, my father's, uh, almost his voice came to my mind, and I yelled at my company and said, yeah, sure, they're right, they were just uh, a handful away. So, yeah, Dad was definitely an influence. Once I got on the job, um, I, I came on the job at a time when there were many, many guys who had experience, who were still working, and they had experienced the so-called war years of uh, the FDNY, and that was the period of the uh, the late 60s into the early 70s, where uh, parts of New York City were burning every night, uh, in particular parts of, of the Bronx and Brooklyn, and the the volume of fire activity uh, that those guys were doing, uh, I don't think has ever happened before or since, and, and hopefully will not happen again, for a lot of um, socioeconomic reasons. Uh, buildings were being set on fire constantly, and it was not uncommon for these guys to literally walk from fire to fire. They'd have a, a good tenement job, put it out, and the dispatcher would send them to a place around the corner that had another fire to go to. And um, early on as a probie, um, I worked with a number of these guys, and uh, just to see, to be around their experience, to see their ease with doing the job, how, how confident and comfortable they were at doing the job. And not all of them were receptive to teaching, but I had one or two in particular who took a liking to me and certainly stepped up and uh, gave me a great deal of uh, uh, knowledge and confidence. Uh, 
and passed on the stuff to me, lessons uh, that they learned from their years on the fire ground. So that that was the, the next level of influence. Um, and then I started um, working as a firefighter for some excellent, excellent company officers and, and chief officers. Uh, for example, when I was a um, firefighter, I was in uh, Mid-Manhattan Ladder Company, and the guy upstairs who was the uh, commander of the 3rd Division, which was Mid-Manhattan, was Vinnie Dunn. Now, Vinnie is not a relative of mine. He spells his name, his last name, a different way than I do. So, in fact, they, sometimes people confuse uh, me for Vinnie. And I, I've, I've shown up at lectures and, uh, to give a lecture on something, and they look at me like, hey, you're not Vinnie Dunn. And it's like, yeah, you're, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> but, but I had an enormous amount, and still have an enormous amount of respect for Vinnie. Um, uh, really good individual. He was uh, not at all an elitist. He would sit at the kitchen table and he would talk to the newest recruit, the newest probie. Uh, uh, he uh, was a really great, it is a great person. So he was an influence as a person, as a leader, but I also was very uh, impressed with how calm he seemed to be at a fire. Uh, it seemed like in Midtown, no matter how bad it looked, if, if there was a significant building collapse or a really difficult fire, uh, all you had to do was see Vinny. I can still picture him standing in the street at his command post with the old roll-up boots uh, talking into the radio, and he was just as, as calm and confident as could be. It looked as if, well, if Vinny's in charge, you know this is going to be all right. You know things are going to turn out well. Uh, I, I learned um, I had an enormous amount of respect for him as a person and the way he conducted himself and um, uh, people were having a chance to work for people like Vinny and other serious uh, some real good officers company officers in Manhattan as a firefighter uh, I tried to emulate uh, and borrow things from them so as I started going through the process of being promoted and, and being a new company officer or a new battalion chief or, or eventually a new deputy uh, in the back of my mind, I had these images of these great men I had worked for and worked with. And I, I like to think I, I I stayed myself and who I was. I had my own style, my own personality. But I tried to borrow uh, some of these great attributes I had experienced uh, from working with and for people uh, like Vinny. So that, those are kind of some of the uh, the people in my experience that were, were um so impressive, uh, so influential for me to work for. Uh, as I say, the, someone I know referred to these guys, the, the old breed, as the the uh, babe roots of the fire service, and, and I had a chance to meet and work with and work for uh, the babe roots of the fire service, and and uh, th those are sort of the people that, that, that influenced me to a great extent. And as far as... Uh the influences to writing your book. Uh, we're, we're, tell us about those and, and where they came from, because that's certainly a different task. Um, well, that, yeah, and, that commitment. That 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 was a different experience, and 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 I'm I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I went through it. It was a, a learning process. I I, I must be a um, uh, I must love being tortured because I'm actually thinking of writing another one after the marathon of doing <laughs> this one. But uh, my, my influences, a couple, uh, I've always been a, a big reader. I've always liked reading. Um, I would say uh, a, may, a big influence is my wife. My, my wife, um, Suzanne Chasen, is a novelist. 
Um, she's been writing for years. I was always impressed with um, her discipline, uh, her ability to stay with it. You know, um, writing is a it, it's it's a different type of experience. It's very solitary. Uh, you don't have a bunch of people uh, with you as you do on the fire ground or at the kitchen table. Uh, it's a very personal challenge. And uh, she's been writing for years, and she was a, an influence. It set a real good example for me of how the writing process works. She was also, when I got the first draft of this book together, I gave it, I nervously handed it to her because I didn't know what to expect. And she uh, did a good quick edit of it and picked up some pretty big mistake, one or two big mistakes I had made. So she, she was, um, I'm sure, an influence. Um, like a lot of people, when I first got the job, I remember being so excited about the job, I picked up the classic Dennis Smith book, um, Report from Engine Company 82. Uh, and Dennis has written a lot of stuff since then. In fact, when I when I got promoted to lieutenant, I uh, moved from mid-Manhattan to the Bronx, so I knew I was going to a whole different type of uh, environment, a whole different type of, of, of firefighting. I was going to an area that was um, uh, busier, that had more fire. And I even reread Dennis's book at that point. Uh, I think he wrote that way back in 1973 or thereabouts. And, and it, it was it became one of the classics, of course. Uh, to this day, people are, are still talking about and reading. Um, that, that was somewhat of an influence, you know, uh, the fact that uh, Dennis did that and was so successful. But... Um, I would say those are my influences. My wife, um, uh, Dennis, Dennis's book, uh, and, and so many authors that you know I couldn't even begin to list that uh, just on my own reading um, that I was very impressed with with, with their style. Um, and and I think just just to sit down and and sit at the computer and start it um, was a, was a little scary, a little nervous, uh, a little nerve wracking. Uh, but I think that, again, my wife set that sort of example of, yeah, you could do it. You know, just just be persistent. It, it is a marathon. If it, if anyone is sitting out there thinking of writing a book, um, I tell them uh, prepare for a marathon. Um, don't worry about success. Don't don't quit your day job because you're not going to make a lot of money. Uh, be persistent. Uh, be able to accept rejection because, you know, it, it took uh, numerous efforts to get the book published. That's the nature of the publishing industry. And uh, one thing that uh, influenced me, I think, um, that stuck out in my mind as a firefighter, you know, firefighting is communal. Uh, you fight a fire together. You live together. You eat together. You do all this stuff together. You get very comfortable with and accustomed with and enjoy having people around you all the time. And writing is not like that. You sit down at the computer. It's it's you're you're working in a vacuum. There's no one there looking over your shoulder saying, "Hey, that was a good line," or saying, "Hey, what, mm -hmm. where are you going with this?" You kind of get a little boring at this point. So be prepared to you know uh, be very independent and realize that uh, it, it, it can be a lonely process. Okay. Cool. Thank you. That, that, that's actually some really good insight. And, you know, from the fireside, right, you don't have somebody tapping your shoulder, uh, giving you the thumbs up or thumbs down or some sort of uh, helpful or not so helpful information, which is which is actually a really great, uh, great way to look at it. Um, you know, most very, very, most indep very independent, the computer. 
very independent process. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike uh, the firehouse kitchen, firefighters, if nothing else, will have a lot of opinions, <laughs> and you may like yeah. them or not like them. But uh, when you do something in the kitchen, in the firehouse, on the fire ground, um, you will get input. Uh, if they like what you do, you will hear that. If they don't like what you did, you will hear that too. Uh, yeah. You know, the firefighters are very honest. I, I appreciate that. You know, I, having worked in different types of environments, different types of worlds, I wasn't always a fireman. Uh, one thing I, I, I note about the fire service is uh, it's very little nonsense. You know, people, firefighters are not afraid to say what they feel. Uh, there, there's not always these uh, hidden agendas or people holding back. Uh, people feel free for the most part to say, hey, uh, what you did screwed up. What you did was bad. I, I, I disagree, or uh, this is what I think. And, and this, this interchange between people, whether they agree or disagree, is is, um, is there in the fire service. There's not that much game playing the way there might be in certain, you know, corporate environments. Yeah. Yep. That, that's that's a great point. A very good point. Um, even in monotony, I mean, I work from home, and and sometimes I just need to get out and. Uh, uh, you know, hit a Starbucks or a, a, a busy place just to have that background noise because uh, I'm accustomed to having, you know, noise around. And, and working from home throws in a challenge where it's tough to get focused from time to time in that situation. Um, oh, so I'm sure you experienced this. I'm sure you experienced this, and you, you can do some of your work from home anyway that uh, you can be efficient in a way. But like you said, that there's times you, you want to be outside around a group of people, uh, even if it's Starbucks, just to get get out of this vacuum you're sitting in. Yeah, yep. That's great. I'm going to share that with some of my bosses now when they ask me why there's so much uh, background noise. Yeah. Stuck in a vacuum. So. Maybe you can put a recording in the background and just uh, make a lot of noise in your living room or your office. That would be helpful. That could work too. I'll try that. I'll try yeah. that. There's got to be a, a YouTube video out there I can pull down. So yeah. Um, so in the book, because we obviously won't have enough time to go through. I mean, there's a couple of sections I highlighted, um, but as we kind of get close to wrapping up here, um, you know, what what are some of your most memorable experiences, and and how do you share them in the book? I mean, it's you know. I understand it. It's a, a fire service story is not short, right? There's a background to it, why why it came up and what happened and what happened afterwards. But can you share one or two of your, your most uh, memorable experiences and then, you know, where they are in the book and, and maybe there's some background or some additional information that you weren't able to get onto the page uh, from your career? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, you do 33 years of anything, there's going to be so many experiences, but, but some definitely uh, stand out. Um, there were two types of things. There were the really big things, the really big experiences, um, the uh, notable ones, the ones that were in the paper, the, the ones that were historical, and, and, and they were the subtle things that uh, people never heard of that were you know, uh, significant in their own way. And the big things, um, I, I, touch, uh, I touch on several in the book, but two of the most significant ones, you really can't write a book about New York City or the FDNY without touching on 9-11 uh, because in many ways it was the defining point for the city and, and for the FDNY and, and there has been so much um, written about 9-11 by people who who, who suffered uh, far more than I did and experienced far more than I did but 
uh, I do dedicate a, a whole chapter to uh, 9-11 and, and my personal experience with that. And I, I am one of the lucky ones. Um, I was not. I was working that morning. I was on duty in the northern part of the city. I was not there when the towers actually collapsed. I didn't get down there till um, that night. And then, like everyone else on the job, spent many, many weeks down there. So uh, certainly, 9/11 is something that um, I felt I had to touch on in the book. Um, there are so many significant fires, but one other big event that will always uh, stick in my mind. Um, I responded to the Happy Land Social Club fire uh, with a truck company in the Bronx. And we got to the scene uh, after the fire was put out. The fire was put out pretty quickly. But, of course, 87 people uh, died of that fire. And our job essentially was to go in uh, to put bodies in the bags, uh, body bags, and to, as best as we could, uh, get some uh, identity of, of who the individuals were. And, and that was... Um, a scene I could never forget. Um, I, I dedicate a chapter to that, and I kind of relate that to, you know, um, really fate, you know, how, how one thing affects everything else, how um, every fire is affected by uh, a chain of events, and how that individual fire didn't have to happen, and, and how certain chain, uh, chain of events occurred that led to it happening. So I, I talk about some of the big experiences in the book, uh, but there there are the subtle things too. Like we've already touched on each promotion I went through. What did that feel like? You know, uh, what did it feel like to be nervous in a new rank? What did it feel like to grow into um, uh, being a, a good company officer or a good chief officer? Uh, kitchen culture. What, what is it like? You know, I'm sure firefighters will read the kitchen chapter and relate to it wherever they're working and hopefully a civilian will pick up that chapter and say wow that's that's kind of a that's kind of an interesting place to, to work um i mean uh, get out a little bit into this is uh, more when i became uh, a chief officer uh, particularly working in manhattan you get to a point and i'm sure you've experienced this where, where you're dealing with the media and, and this was um, a factor throughout the city but especially in midtown it seems as if if anything happened in midtown uh Within seconds, CBS, ABC, NBC were there with their microphones in your face. And uh, that was good and bad. I, I had to yeah. learn the subtleties of how you deal with that, especially if they got a little pushy, especially if there were circumstances to that fire or a fatality where you just, there's things you couldn't tell them. So I touch on that, the subtle the, the subtleties of dealing with the media. And, and even I, I wanted to dedicate a chapter um, at one point about, uh, I guess, 15 or, or so years ago, I made a decision to start lecturing. And I had never done that before. And, and, and just as be, uh, similar to becoming a new company officer or a chief, that was a learning experience. And that was something that uh, took me a while to get comfortable with. And there was uh, interesting perspectives and, and some funny things that happened with that. So those are some of the things, the big events, the, the, the sad events that I experienced in the job, but also some of the the um, uh, more subtle experiences of the job that, that were were uh, significant in a different way. Well, that's that's good. I mean, the media, um, it, it's tough and it's getting tougher as, as the media landscape. I say media, I'm really... You know, TV and newspaper landscape is one thing. Uh, social media and influencers are another thing. 
um, out there. Uh, everybody wants that scoop and they want to push you to get something or they want you to, you know, say something that um, can be taken out of context or literally, you know, you're, you're trying to avoid speculation, but they want you to speculate. So they've got something to kind of feed off. Um, so that's, you know, that's an interesting point uh, to bring up, especially, yeah, Midtown. I mean, I, you know, when I work for um, the New York Post, um, everything that happened from 23rd Street to 57th Street was the priority of the day because uh, that's what the world knew, you know, and, and everything else after that was, was secondary. But anything from, you know, pretty much Midtown to Central Park was was key for the day. Uh, so that, that's a tough area to work in. Absolutely. Very competitive. Uh, and I, I'm sure the media would monitor police and fire radio so they would know instantly uh, what was going on. They were they were there almost as fast as we were in certain, certain cases. And you, you've worked for newspapers, so you, you went through a, a lot of this, I'm sure, yourself when you were in Manhattan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it wouldn't be uncommon to to get there at the first, uh, you know, right as the first engine was getting there or, you know, if it was a police incident right when the police were getting there. Uh, once I found myself in the middle of a shootout, I realized I was a little too close, but I was in the middle of a place to go. Um, you know, and, and thankfully, I was actually a guy from ESU, Truck One, noticed, uh, and he just said, you know, stay there and we'll uh, we'll chat as quick as we can. I said, okay, sounds fair. And and that was the end of that discussion. Um, uh, talking about scooping a story, that that's that comes as close as you can get, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was, and ironically enough, I had left another story to drop off some films, so that kind of dates when this was. Um, and the the other photographer, uh, when I finally got back to the original scene, said, uh, "Where were you? You've been gone for like five hours." I'm like, "It's too tough to explain." And and you know, of course, then I got accused of of not sharing. I said, well, "I wasn't in a situation to share. I was." Uh, I was a little worried about myself at that point. Uh, absolutely. So, um, yeah. um, so one of the chapters, um, uh, you know, about the, uh, it's called the scuttle. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? That's one of the ones that uh, I do have to do another read on that. Uh, uh, yeah. But you're talking about uh, roof work and ventilation. And that's, you know, that's something that, that's very unique in New York just because it's unique every place, right? I mean, in the Southwest, the, the tile roofs and everything else are, are completely different. But can you tell me a little bit about that? And, and you know, because FDNY is so um, uh, procedure-driven, um, your your tasks as a truck truck firefighter officer um, and kind of what you cover in that chapter, because I think that would be interesting to a lot of uh, younger firefighters who are, are trying to learn truck work, um, you know, in this day and age. Yeah, well, that that particular, that's a relatively early chapter in the book. It's it's relatively early. the incident is relatively early in um, my experience as a firefighter. I was still a firefighter uh, at that uh, point. I had um, recently transferred from an engine company into a mid Manhattan ladder company, so I was still very much in the process. Uh, maybe I had I don't know maybe three years on the job at this point, three four years. But I was new to truck work. Uh, I was still learning uh, aspects of truck work, and uh, the chapter is sort of about. Um, ventilating a roof, uh, but it's more about um, bigger concepts and bigger questions like what are you capable or willing to do as an individual? Uh, how do you deal with fear? Uh, how do you define courage? And in a nutshell, if I could just summarize the chapter, I I talk about how I'm new to Manhattan, I'm new to a lot of work. Uh, I'm at home. We work 24-hour tours. Uh, I'm not feeling well. I must have had a really bad cold. I'm feeling kind of run down. And my thinking is, 
well, if I go sick, that means I have to go all the way down to Brooklyn the next morning to see the fire department medical officer to, um, you can't just go sick and show up at work the next day. You have to be cleared by the medical officer to go back to work. And I don't want to do that. So I'm thinking, all right, it's probably just a cold. I know I know I feel pretty crummy, but I'm going to go to work. The, ch- the chances are I'll get through this 24 without a problem. And, of course, uh, just the opposite happens. I get down to the city um, about, oh, I don't know, middle of the night, 2, 3 in the morning. A good job comes in. I believe it turned out to be a fourth alarm fire. And an enormous, um, I guess we call it non-combustible, ordinary construction building, uh, fire throughout the building. Uh, it's a type of building that has the brick walls, the brick exterior, but everything interior-wise is uh, wooden structures. And it's also heavily renovated. So that means there's all these channels uh, inside the building, inside the walls, allowing the heat and smoke to rise and get up to the roof. So I show up at the scene. We probably came in on the second alarm. Uh, my assignment at that point, I believe I was the roof man, which meant that my job was to get up to the roof. This is a, uh, a roof uh, made of uh, basically roof boards covered by tarring. And my job is to get up there with my saw and my tools, uh, help the, the units that are already working up there, uh, cutting uh, ventilation holes. So. This is my job, and it's a six-story building, and I'm looking at the area ladder. I had to take that to get up to the roof. It was the only safe way to get up. Uh, you couldn't get up through the interior because it's a combustible building. And I talk about it in the chapter how I'm on this area ladder, and it's bouncing, and I've got this heavy um, sore, uh, roof sore over one shoulder, and i got my halligan and my, my axe in the other hand and the scuba on my back. And by the time I get up to the roof, I'm already exhausted, and I'm thinking, I should have gotten sick. You know, what am I doing here? Uh, you know, what an idiot. What an idiot I was. But, you know, now what happens is I get up there and the adrenaline pops in. So I uh, I get instructions where they want me to cut. I'm starting to concentrate on my roof cuts. And, again, I have not cut many roofs at this point, so I'm doing it slowly and carefully. And um, uh, having trained at it, I, I have an idea of what I'm supposed to do. And I'm in the process of doing this when um, there's an opening in the roof. Uh, we call it a scuttle. It's just a square opening uh, flush with the roof, probably about three foot square. And that the cover of the scuttle has been taken off. Uh, the cover of all the scuttles have been taken off because that enables the heat and smoke from below to vent through the roof, uh, and we supplement that with cutting other sections of the roof and putting pushing down the ceiling beneath our cuts. And I'm in the middle of this when a firefighter pops up out of the scuttle in the middle of the smoke, and he tears off his face piece, and he yells out, there's a firefighter dying downstairs. And th- this is like, whoa, you know, I, I all of a sudden, everything kind of stopped. I put down the saw. And this is scary and absurd at the same time because one of the things that uh, we're always taught from probing school uh, through the times you're out in the field is you don't go up a ladder through a, a scuttle. Uh, that's a, a path for smoke, heat, and possibly even fire to go through. The very fact that I'm seeing a firefighter standing in the scuttle with his head sticking over the roof is strange and unacceptable to begin with 
And on top yeah. of that, he's telling us, hey, there's a firefighter da- downstairs dying. You get hit with a lot at once, and it's it's really uh, strange, unusual, scary, absurd, all at the same time. And again, I'm a new guy, uh, still learning the job, certainly still learning truck work. I walk over to the scuttle with a senior member for my company, who's been around for years at this point. He's near retirement, great guy, good firefighter. And I, I, our eyes kind of meet, and I right away can see this guy's concerned. He looks kind of scared, and I'm thinking, this guy's got 30-plus years in the job. If he's upset, this must be pretty bad. And I didn't know what to do. Um, it's me and this guy and this scuttle, and everything is saying, you don't do this. For some reason, I still don't understand. I kind of debate, kick this around in that chapter. Um, maybe it was uh, a sense of duty. Maybe it was a sense of this is the only thing to do. I don't want to feel guilty not doing it. Uh, I just threw the mask on and started going down the ladder, uh, down into the scuttle, into the top floor, against everything I've been taught, against all my instincts. And this is, you know, uh, this is stretching the envelope, so to speak. And in the chapter, I describe what it was like on that floor, how um, I was so green that initially I started walking away when I got to the bottom of the scuttle ladder to the top floor and just started reaching out with my hands, seeing what I could find. Within six, seven feet of crawling around, I realized I didn't know how to get back to the scuttle ladder. You know, I put I may have put myself in a precarious position. So I mm-hmm. I went back to the scuttle ladder and this time uh I kept my left hand on the wall so at least I knew all right, if I have to bail out of here I, I, I can guide myself back to the ladder and I described what it felt like to be uh crawling through the smoke and then suddenly stumbling almost on this firefighter who was kind of leaned over on the floor and I think, Well this has gotta be the guy so I remember reaching around him with my, my arms, and he's a big guy, and he's a heavy guy, and I think, this has got to be the guy that's dying. i got to do something. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I, I knew I had to do something. And then I hear, you know that muffled voice you can he- barely hear through a face piece, a scoop of face piece? The guy is saying, it's not me, it's not me. I had, gra- I had grabbed one of the rescuers, <laughs> you know, <laughs> one of the guys that was actually helping out who helped recover the guy who had taken the feed, who had taken smoke or whatever it was. And what they did was they wound up um, uh, tying a rope to him and getting him up through the scuttle to the roof, and he survived. Okay. And I, I talk about that experience, and I, t- I mentioned how uh, it's ironic, and it's, it's like poetic justice, about 20, 25 years later, uh, that guy survived, he was fine. 20 to 25 years later, his son was on the job, and one was one was one of my firefighters working in my division in the Bronx, so it was kind of a a, a neat ending to the story. But I, I wrote the chapter not so much to describe uh, vertical ventilation, but to describe my experience and kind of question what is it that motivates us generally in the world, and what motivates us on the fire ground. How do you define courage? Because I I don't think of myself as an especially courageous person. I've worked with some guys in the job who definitely were. Uh, what was it that motivated me to do something, uh, even though obviously what I did uh, didn't help out tremendously? I was willing to take the risk, to take the chance, to step up, to try to help. 
Um, and probably, I, I think if if everyone was honest, uh, I think most firefighters out there have experienced things similar to this, where you were at a scary, difficult situation and you didn't know what to do, but you acted. And what is it that motivates us to take those actions? Is it in our DNA as humans? Is it is it a sense of responsibility? Uh, I don't know if I have the answers, but that was kind of the main theme of that particular chapter. Uh, uh, I, I remember writing that chapter specifically because I was kind of reliving it uh, decades after having experienced it. It's when I said earlier how you remember the intricacies of every fire, uh, big fire that you've been to, and I even remember who the officer was and who my other firefighters mm-hmm. were on that tour. Tom, I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to join us on this podcast. And, and, you know, I encourage anybody uh, who's listening to the podcast, uh, Tom, if you can share just here uh, how folks can, can get a copy of the book. And, again, the book is called Notes from the Fireground, uh, Memoir of a New York Firefighter. Uh, where can they go to find this book and order it? Well, it, it is available on Amazon. I think right now Amazon is out of stock, which I think is a, hopefully a good sign because that means people have been buying yeah. it. Uh, they can get it uh, on Amazon. Amazon is going to get it back in stock soon, they say. Uh, you can order it uh, directly from the publisher, which is McFarland Books, M-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-D. Uh, I have a, a website, uh, chieftomdunn.com. Uh, you could go to my website and order it for that. And uh, again, it, it's it's focused in New York City, but it's, I think, a book that firefighters anywhere could relate to. Uh, you, you don't have to be a New York resident or an FDNY guy. I, I wrote it for the civilian community. I, I certainly wrote it for firefighters um, anywhere who, who might be uh, curious about uh, some of the experiences I had. I think a lot of what I experienced, uh, they probably have also. Maybe we have some shared experiences. Um, and again, the book's been out uh, only about two or three weeks now, so um, uh, hopefully um, it will be of interest to a, a couple of people out there. And I, I, again, I appreciate your taking the time to give me you know, an opportunity to be part of this podcast. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Pete. Tom, I, I have to say I, I do appreciate it. And, and you know, with, with the book, um, again, I have to you know do a, a, a deep read of it, a full read of it this uh, this coming week. Um, but you know, the way you capture the fire service, whether it's written for other firefighters or it's written for the general population, um, the way that you're able to capture the firefighters in this book is in a situation where another firefighter reading this says, I I know that firefighter, or I remember that situation, or I can recall something similar, kind of like what we touched on earlier, right? It's, it's firefighters are the same, no matter where you go. Um, but just the personalities and, and there's a certain personality that's in the fire service that you can't find in most other places. Um, but when you read this book, you, you can see this happening in your station, whether uh, you're another uh, FDNY firefighter or you know, someplace on the West coast or in a small volunteer department, like you mentioned in Iowa. Um, it, it is that um, the characteristics of the members of the fire service are the same. Uh, situations are certainly different, but the characteristics uh, you can picture your friends in there. I think sure. so. I think uh, I think the faces change, but the personalities are are kind of the yeah. same. We 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 experience the same wherever we are. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. 
Again, uh, Tom Dunn joining us on uh, today at Firehouse, or today on Firehouse, I'm sorry, uh, our new podcast. Our next one will be out on April 1st, uh, so take a look for that when you can. Um, and then Tom's book is called Don'ts from the Fireground, Memoir of a New York Firefighter. If you visit firehouse.com and find this page uh, where the podcast is loaded, uh, we'll have links so you can order a copy of the book. I highly encourage you to do it. Um, it'll, it'll take a, a day or two to read, but it's, uh, it's time well spent and uh, some good encouragement and some good uh, insight and a couple of good laughs in there as well. So, um, all right, Tom, thank you so much, uh, everyone listening. Stay safe and uh, take care. Thank you so much, Pete. At MSA, your health and safety drive is to develop advanced safety equipment with performance and protection in perfect balance. Like Globe Athletics, the latest innovation in turnout gear. Developed as an athletic gear for firefighters, Athletics uses unique stretch fabrics that provide body contoured fit for unprecedented range of motion and flexibility. It's lighter weight, less bulky, and provides the protection you need from your turnout gear. Get the full story at msafire.com globe.